How's it going, everybody? Another brilliant Montreal Canadiens game. Another one-goal performance. I'm going to be joined here in two seconds by Chris Watkins and Marsha Joseph. I'm really excited for this podcast, or I guess post-game show, uh, because these are two people who are really brilliant, and I'm excited for you to see them. So I'm going to welcome on right now. How's it going, guys? Doing well. How are you doing? Doing great. I mean, this is fun no matter what. It doesn't really matter what the result of the game is. Plus, I don't have, like, a crazy vested interest in this team anymore. So it's a lot easier to sit there and watch them lose than, like, six years ago when it would have been, like, ruining my mood for the night. <laughs> Much better now where I can just make fun of them. It's good to keep uh, it lighthearted. Imagine yeah. being a Blackhawks fan right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. oh, man. Imagine being, like, the Blackhawks fan who was, like, all in on Seth Jones after that trade yeah yeah i uh i i i, I feel for them uh <laughs> you know just like hopefully you know you have something to numb the pain some drinking or you know some light like solitaire or something like that to take their mind off of uh that but yeah so you know the canadians can look in the mirror and say at least we're not doing that yeah and i guess they can i mean the chicago blackhawks at least won a few cups but uh the canadians could say oh we went to the finals last year i think there's like a certain amount of you have to understand what they're going through and that like they don't look like they have an identity at all. Sure. And that makes sense when, you know, you've lost Shea Weber, you're without Carey Price right now for the foreseeable future. You've lost two thirds of a top line that actually right. carried you through the last three seasons. They were incredible, that Tatar Gallagher Dano line. Right. And you've also like kind of just upended the middle of your roster as well. It's I mean, they've got some injuries to deal with as well. Mike Hoffman is going to be back soon. Joel Edmondson's still out. But that is not exactly an exciting team to watch right now. I mean, I, I think it comes down to you sort of hit the nail on the head where, you know, even before last year uh, when they made the cup run, you know, it wasn't that they had... It wasn't that they had a lot of top-end talent, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, like a Tampa Bay or Colorado or whatever, but that they can roll out four lines and just, like, okay, we might not, like, destroy your, like, first line, but lines three and four, we're definitely going to win that because we just have better players than you. And I, and I think that came through last year just when they had so many guys that they could, you know, that they can afford to bench Thomas Tatar and still make it to the to the cup finals. And now he's, you know, top six for, like, New Jersey. is crazy. And then you just replace all of those guys with basically nothing, you know, just empty roster slots. And so, you know, just the people who are on the, the power play or whatever, just, like, would I would I have like yeah. like this lineup out there in a normal circumstance? And so yeah, it, it, it's a little bit disappointing given the the run last year and just like what led to that success. Yeah, and I know that there's a lot of people who want to give them a bit of a break for like you can't replace Shea Weber in the off season because you know it it's just not an op. There's no opportunity to replace a player of that caliber on the free agent market unless you get Dougie Hamilton, and they didn't. And I don't think they were ever really in the race. But at the same time, nobody knows more about Shea Weber's health situation than the Montreal Canadiens, so they knew this was coming at some point, that he wasn't going to be able to play anymore. And they didn't really do anything to, no. you know, bolster themselves. You know, they, they have Jeff Petrie still, but that's something that was pre-Weber, right? And I guess they extended him recently, but he can't do it on his own. There's a lot of pressure on him. I thought he had a decent game tonight, but uh, you look at... I know this will probably appeal to you, Chris, because I know you're a big advocate of uh, running out less defensemen. But yeah. I, I look at, especially when Mike Hoffman's back for this team, I think the only way that the Canadians are going to be able to compete this year is if they kind of upend traditional hockey values, right? And that is, when they're down, this team doesn't have offensive punch. They need to roll out four forwards, one defense. Yeah, I mean... I mean, even from the perspective of, you know, let's just say you don't believe in my <laughs> mantra of, of playing, you know, four forwards at, as often as possible. But, like, I, I go back to the 2015 cup run for the Blackhawks and, like, uh, Michael Roosevelt, like, breaks his ankle uh, in the second round. Um, and then they uh, traded for a team in and that was just, like, a disastrous trade. And so 
Joe Quinville was like, you know what, forget it. Like, we're just going to play our best for defensive in the whole entire game. Like, we're not going to bother with a third pairing and just, like, go with it. And they barely scraped by Anaheim doing that and then be Tampa Bay. And it's just like, we're just going to roll out our best players. And, like, you know, if they get tired, like, you know, it's the playoffs and you can do that. And obviously you don't want to run people into the ground. But to your point, I mean, basically the whole point I, uh, I've been trying to make with the four forwards thing is just, like, if you have the talent on your roster – like the positions ultimately don't matter at the end of the day. Like if you're like, I'm purposely bringing out, you know, a AHL caliber defenseman because I need to have six defensemen on the roster. Then at the end of the day, just like roll out your, you know, 14th best forward, you know, as you said, Mike Hoffman, if he comes back, like, okay, put Jake Evans on the back end if you need to, to make room for him. So you're not sitting them in the press box. Like it doesn't make sense to just continually try to fit square pegs and surround holes just because this is what's been done all along, especially if it's not leading to success. And so I think, to your point, like if ultimately at the end of the day, the only way to keep this thing going is to sort of think outside of the box. And those are things that you have to consider. So, yeah. To kind of piggyback off of that, like they need to find themselves because right now they just look so lost. Like, yes, the entire team was centered around Shea Weber and Carrie Price, but like you're not going to have them for a while. So what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Yeah, you have to be able to roll with the punches a little bit, and that includes losing a, a major player. I mean, as much as you can say they've lost but big th- big players and uh, important players, look at the Pittsburgh Penguins right now. You know, like, they're without Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin. I believe Brian Rust is out now. He didn't play tonight's game. They're also down Jake Gensel. Like, they're getting it done. They're looking competitive, and, like, if any team should be struggling to build depth, it's the Penguins who redlined it to try to win those back-to-back cups, right? Like, they lacked picks, they lacked, like, top-end prospects, they had no cap flexibility, so the, there's no real excuses in my mind. But at the same time, let's talk about the one positive for the Canadians about this game, because we don't want to get everybody <laughs> mad at us right off the hop. Jake Allen, I think through two games has been absolutely brilliant and that's going to be extremely important if they want to win any games this season while they're scoring one goal a game. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, Jake Allen playing well and, and the sort of knock on him has been whenever he's, he's been asked to step up to another more spot, you know, he's sort of struggled to deal with that workload. You know, I think that's kind of retroactive, you know, storytelling where, you know, he definitely was, uh, I would not say uh, even a top 15 starter in the league, but definitely a, a, a guy that can carry a team to the playoffs like he did a couple of times with St. Louis. I think even beat uh, the Wild. It like just basically stood on his head and just like single-handedly defeated the Wild in the playoffs. And so like that's basically the best you can expect from a player of his caliber. Um, and so him for him to be able to come in, and this is why they signed him, for him to be able to come in and be able to hold the fort, you know, it, it definitely could have been a, a 3-1 or 4-1 uh, game. Uh, you know, the, uh, the save made in the first uh, period where, like, everything is falling apart in front of him. He sticks his uh, right leg out and sort of just is able to stop uh, stop the puck out the doorstep. You know, it's plays like that where the team's not playing well. They're not generating much offense. Not a lot of stuff is going on. And one mistake can sort of cost you. And being able to sort of hold the fort until they can get their stuff together uh, is super important for a team like this as it's trying to find their way. Jake Allen has a history of kind of wearing down a little bit when he's counted on too much. If it were up to you guys, if you're like the head coach or like GM of the Montreal Canadiens, you look at this start, you look at the lack of depth behind Allen, do you try to maintain a situation where he's not overplayed while Carey Price is out, or do you just kind of redline him and hope that you can scrape by until Price gets back? What if he doesn't come back? <laughs> Sorry to be more yeah. morbid, but it's true. You can't, it's you can't run him into the ground, right? You you need to preserve him somehow. Like it's still early, as much as people kind of say that it is still early. So try to make use of that. Yeah, I mean, in my in my take on it is, and, and I've gone back and forth with like the analytics community on this, and, and, and I mean, generally it makes sense. So you know, people are like, you know, you try to avoid you know playing guys back to backs, all of that you know, try to avoid wearing people down. And I'm like, there's some truth to that. You know, I've seen the stats on it. But I also think oftentimes in those situations where you have like a Brayden Colby playing like 70 games in a season or something like that, just as recently as a few years ago, it's like, yeah, sometimes that's due to the player being worn down, but it's also more often due to the team having to do that, having to rely on that player so much because they don't have anything else. 
And so it's less so that to me, it's that guy wearing down. It's more so that, like everybody else is so dependent on them. The, the Jets also have this issue as well with Connor Hellebuck, which is like they're so dependent on him. If there's any downturn in their play, then the, the whole team falls apart. And so it's the same thing where it's like, to me, regardless of whether you switch Jake Allen in or out, like, yes, that may preserve him a little bit later, but it's a Marshall's point for what? Like, <laughs> like if you're trying to preserve him for later, it's like for a deep playoff run, but you're like 12 points out the playoffs by, by the yeah. uh, break, then it doesn't really matter. So, like, to me, it's like I kind of would try to front load his workload as much as possible with the hope that Terry Price comes back and then you can sort of space it out. But if they try to, like, oh, well, we got to save Jake Allen so we can make another cup run, but you're, like, not anywhere in the playoff picture, then it really doesn't matter. So I think, like, if he's a high hand, go with him, and then hopefully, you know, maybe you have to consider finding a sort of a, a secondary option on the trade market or something like that to sort of uh, to, to help him out um, in the meantime. Yeah, I can't imagine that. I mean, I don't want to rag on Montembeau too much for the performance against the Sabres because I thought they really left him out to dry in that game. <laughs> But he's not a guy who has a lot of history of success in the NHL either, right? Like, he's not super young, but he's also not established, which is never a great combination for a goaltender. So there can't be no opportunity to upgrade there during the season. And you have to think that uh, the Canadians might have some faith in Caden Primo at some point during the season. He's supposed to be their goaltender of the future. So if they don't, that's a whole nother issue. Mark Andre Fuller might be on the available at some point in the near future. <laughs> oh geez, poor Flurry. Another bad highlight tonight with him out of the net with the puck in the net. Yeah. I feel bad for him. He's he's such a weird goalie, not to get off on a tangent, but it's like he has these stretches of spectacular play, and then he just does something only Mark Andre Fleury would do. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, and going back to that point, I mean, this is, you know, we'll talk, you know, guys that can get away with it. Like, you know, he, you know, he can do that a little bit in Pittsburgh because it's like, all right, yeah, you know, I'm going to give up some like soft goal from forever. Like, I remember distinctly uh, the series that turned me off on, on Flurry until he, he started to have this run of success was the 2011 series against the Flyers, where it was just like, <laughs> it, it was almost like one of those, uh, I, I forget what they call it, like the goalie, you know, where you're like playing it. You don't have a goalie for like beer league, and so you just put the like the little like fake uh the shooter tutor. Yeah, yeah, the shooter tutor. It was just like that. It was like uh, like everything was just going through, and I was like, what was the difference between that flurry and the one that helped him win a couple cups? And it was like, yeah, obviously he played and stood on his head. He also had Matt Murray uh, to sort of you know help him. They can trade off, but the team also in front of him was great. And the same thing with Vegas, which is like even if flurry is not the most amazing goalie, and obviously he had a great year last year. But even if he's not the most amazing goalie, they're still dominating puck possession. They're still sort of limiting the quality of the shots that they're going that he's going against. And then he can make he can make an amazing save here or there. And that actually allowed, I think his wildness sort of was a perfect goalie for that because it's like, all right, yeah, we need you, we need you to make the amazing save because we're gonna limit all the easy saves that anybody else can sort of stop. Um, but the one say that we do give up, we need someone to, you know, just dive across the net and, and, and do the amazing. And then we'll figure it out on our end. And so fortunately with the Blackhawks, that's not the team uh, to, to make that same uh, approach. Um, but, you know, going back to Jake Allen, you know, I think it's a, a little bit different because the Canadians don't have that margin for error. Um, and they really have to play very close to the vest because they don't have the game breakers right now um, to sort of make up for that deficit. If, you know, Allen lets in a couple soft goals at the beginning or, or the uh, uh, multiple those as well, they can't really make it up after the fact. Yeah, exactly. Now, I don't want to call you out too much, Chris, but I saw you getting on uh, Lafreniere earlier in the game. And when uh, uh, yeah. Allen robbed him twice early, I think in the first yeah. period there, and he ends up getting the, the game winner. How you feeling? Yeah. And, 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 and I saw that and I was like, I actually checked my Twitter mentions right after because I was like, I know someone's going to bring this up. I mean, even on that goal, you know, to be honest, I watched it a couple of times. It was like an amazing. All right. So a couple of things. So Jake Evans tries to uh, <laughs> tries to forecheck uh, Adam Fox completely whiffs. So Fox is just sort of as a free run, has a great breakout pass to uh, Savannah Jack. And then Savannah Jack has like three people chasing him. And then I don't know what Savar was doing. And, and the announcer called it out. It was like, the only thing you are supposed to do as David Savard is prevent that pass from happening. Yep. It's like, let the yep. get behind him or whatever. And, and, and as the announcer said, it's like, 
Jake Allen can't cover both the shooter and the passer at the no. same time. Like, you have one job and you failed at that. So, yes, Lafreniere scored, but I don't think it was due to anything that he did. It was basically a comedy of errors plus, like, a great plays uh, from Zavanja, who I thought had an amazing game. Um, and so I was like, yes, of course, yeah, great. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I can get into uh, Lafreniere and all that stuff like that, like, all all night. But, yes, congratulations to him. I'm glad he got that in front of his family. It was about to happen. Yeah, yeah, it was. Exactly. I, I, I it don't was destined. I, I don't think that's a that's. Uh, oh yeah, this future superstar waiting down the pipeline. Like Chris was wrong. Like I don't think anybody's going to be able to say that after tonight. So. No, and and I'm glad you brought up the forechecking thing on Fox because this is so, as soon as the game started, I noticed the Canes were trying to get in on the forecheck against Fox, and it just was not happening. Like he was so quick in transition, getting the puck, evading forechecks, and just. A free exit every single time and they didn't really adjust all game like that was almost the story of the game in terms of the canadians yeah. failing to generate much like uh, pressure in the offensive zone was just they kept on doing the same thing and fox kept on calling him on it and every time they challenged him like trying to pressure him with the puck he just lackadaisically deked someone out and then it was straight up the ice again it always felt like they were just one step behind them yeah you know like chasing the game when they had every opportunity to pull ahead. Yeah. And that's like the last thing that you want, right? Especially with a team that I would imagine right now is pretty fragile. Like mm-hmm. I wa- I just, I don't like to read too much into body language, but in that game against the Sabres, I was looking at the bench after I think like the third or fourth goal. And it's just like, it's the second game of the season, guys, second half of back to back. And they're all sitting there like shoulders slumped, like, oh, I can't believe we're here again. It's like, guys, it's a crap game, but like, just go out there when it, when you're gonna lose try something you know don't sit there and be like oh my god i mean the best part about watching this one of the reasons i was excited to come on because the last hockey game i watched in full uh, with joy and passion in my heart was game seven against the Leafs or whatever then i was just like that was why i was i was at my parents house i was just visiting and i was at my parents house and i was like oh wait the game is on i you know kicked them right out the room and, and just like watched it i'm just cackling with glee Every time uh, Toronto, especially in the third period, when it was clear something was going very wrong, when Toronto would just bring the the puck off the ice and just face like you know stone wall trying to get uh, <laughs> trying to get across the blue line or whatever, and just like I was like Toronto either has no sense of urgency or Montreal just sucked all the life and energy out of them. And literally, it was the same. To your point, the body language was the exact same today, except it was the Canadians having that because every single time there was a play that Nick Suzuki had in the third period where he's just going straight down the middle trying to, like, you know, force something to happen. But there's, like, three Rangers on him. And he's, yeah. like, he gives up the puck and he just goes all the way. And I was, like, that's exactly what it looked like. I, like, I was just, like, laughing and cheering the whole entire time every single time that they broke up, like, an entry pass and whatever. And it was, it, like I said, it was a mirror image, um, but in a very bizarre fashion. <laughs> this is painful for Marsha. You're you're just a Leafs a fan, right? Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Outside. No, no, no. You're all good. It's... <laughs> It was annoying, but you're you were 100 correct. It just they looked like they had the life sucked out of them in that game, and it was frustrating. But it is what it is. And I wonder how much of, I mean, not I, we're not going to spend too much talking about the playoffs last year, but just because the Canadians are so insp- uninspiring this year, let's give Canadians fans something happy to talk about. <laughs> and uh, watching like all or nothing, right? I don't know if you guys have had a chance to check that out. But uh, on the broadcast up here, they were actually criticizing Keith's speech before yeah. the overtime in game six. And I was shocked that they were so harsh about it. Like everyone on the panel was like, oh, this is awful, awful speech. And he was too negative. But like that overtime in game six, the Leafs came out banging. Like that was the best hockey they played that entire series. Price just absolutely stole the show. And then the first chance the Canadians got, Kokaniemi just shot it off the inside of, uh, I forget which defenseman skate. It might have been Dermot. Yeah, so yeah. And uh, it beat Jack Campbell. It was just a fluke goal, right? And like that defeat, it seemed like just took all the air out of the Leafs. It's like nothing we do matters. So the, the effort was garbage, I thought, in game seven. I don't know if it was strategy or if they just weren't in it. They felt like they were destined to lose again. Like the, the same familiar pattern, right? But it was funny to me watching. Keith get eviscerated because of the result when right. like if you actually watched what happened he had them ready to run through a brick wall yeah, yeah I mean I, I, I tweeted right after that segment I was like uh, 
with not the best review of, of that. <laughs> exactly what you said. I mean, I, I, you know, it's been a long time since I played organized sports, but I remember, you know, sitting in the locker room and I couldn't imagine doing it over 82 games, and, and including the playoffs. Where it's like, okay, after every intermission, after every stuff, you have to have some, you know, rah-rah speech and all that stuff. Like, I manage people now. And was like, all right, yeah, four-quarter numbers. Let's go do it or whatever. I like, and so, yeah, it's 100% based on the result and uh, and all that. Because every single time, like, I'm sure if you would have zoomed into uh, Ducharme in, in the Canadians locker room and they have the cameras around there, you know, games one through four, like, I'm sure, like, Ducharme didn't really have, like, oh, I'm sure he didn't change his approach. Yeah. Well, the first half of the series and the second half of the series, like I'm sure it was the same, you know, cut and dry speech or whatever, like get pucks in deep, so on and so forth, you know, all of that. And so, I, I, yeah, I, I just hated, I just hated all of that because it's only based on the result and only if they would have won and be like, oh yeah, you know, you inspired them to victory and all of that. And so, yeah, it's, it's disappointing to say the least. Yeah. That kind of leads me into saying that like context is extremely important uh, yeah. when it comes to things like this, because that's just one moment out of a whole year and like is he like this all the time who knows maybe that's what actually motivates them but yes it looks aggressive in the context of the documentary but (laughs) it somehow kind of worked a little bit maybe not to the positive result but it sparked them a little yeah that's what you needed right and I also feel like if anything my impression from that documentary and we'll move on from all or nothing the second here for any Habs fans who are upset we're talking about it it's like if anything like there's criticism of Keefe he seems very unfiltered mm-hmm. like the way that he talks to players is very uh raw but I, I feel like a lot of players probably appreciate that instead of giving them bull you know yeah, yeah. It, it, exactly and, and I think like you know I was telling somebody you know, I was trying to get my wife to watch it because I somehow tricked her into watching the F1 uh, drive to survive whatever oh, she, nice. I love that or whatever and, and, and like I, I would have never in a million years tagged my wife as a f1 fan and now she wants to watch the races like weekend so it's like great it's a great itchy way to get her into hockey and then i can just watch it whenever i want as opposed to like you know negotiating to be able to like stay up <laughs> late and watch hockey and all that stuff and so but i i think where the series really failed there was like one i don't i would have loved to have seen you know even one speech from the canadians and understand what about the series turned and why it went the way it did you know you just sort of like you know it's just almost like jaws in the water you just hear the music and all of a sudden people are getting eaten and you have no idea why like there's no motivation for the shark so like uh so having that or at least you know some tactical understanding or even a, like a further breakdown of like okay how are marner and like matthews talking to each other like what was going on micing them up during the game like here and there as you said, the spirit sort of being sucked out of them. Well, we didn't have any context for that. So it was just like, oh, yeah, they were going to win. And then all of a sudden, like, they just looked up and it was game seven and they, they lost the series. And, like, there was nothing there to really drive that. So, yeah, it was really disappointing. Yeah, no meat and potatoes. I mean, hockey, you can never predict what's going to happen, right? But it, it's kind of unfortunate that it probably would have been a more interesting documentary if it was following the Canadians, right? Like, it was such a crazy story for them. Like, obviously, the yeah. Leafs were the team that, at the beginning of the season, of course, you're going to want to look at the Leafs. And the fan base is so much larger, so it makes sense to do the documentary about the Leafs. But, like, that improbable first-round win, and then against the Jets, like, uh, Dominic Ducharme fails a COVID test, and he has to be out. You know, like, they lose their coach, mm-hmm. right? For essentially two playoff series. And then they absolutely curb-stomp the Jets to the point of, like, I think it was the worst scoring chance differential over four games in analytics history. Yeah. Like, it was crazy how badly they destroyed the Jets. And then they, you know, hang on by their teeth and, like, kind of play even the Golden Knights and win that one. Improbable. And then, of course, get curb stomped in the end. So, like, that is interesting as well. But, uh, yeah, it kind of sucks that I feel like hockey's so closed off mm-hmm. that it's all access, but it's not really all access. You know, like, they're not going to be interviewing... Or, like, having intimate moments between Marner and Matthews talking about, like, what's going on, why they're struggling. You know, there was very few player interviews during the playoffs. Right. It was it was kept very much to, like, Dubas and Keith, right? Yeah, well, very polished. Like, they have an yeah. image to keep up, so they're not going to give you everything you want to see. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, 
last point on that. Like, I think <laughs> I forgot who, did, who wrote the article. I think it was Thomas Drantz, uh, 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 covering the Canucks or whatever. But I think when last year's bubble and when they were covering, I think it was the the Knights Canucks series whatever and just like all the profanities like every single game just listen to them whatever i was like yeah you didn't get any of that coming through in the series but like to me that's because like you see the animosity the the you know the mark shifley hit or whatever you know there's all types of that that is the passion and the fun of playoff hockey is like the physicality and like seeing the same teams over and over again and starting to not like them then dislike them then hate them like we didn't see any of that sort of develop it and yeah. so once again you're missing a bunch of context there. And yes, you know, if you're going to focus only on the on ice stuff then give us more of the on ice stuff. And obviously like the Leafs don't want to like break down the strategies and all that. Okay. That's fine. But like, then give us the behind the scenes stuff. Like, you know, what's going on, you know, or even like, Hey, uh, we saw Nick Felino's dad, you know, calling in with Wendell Clark. It's like, yeah, everything's going great. It's like, okay, well show him calling him after the losses. Like, Hey, uh, you know, it'll be fine or something like that. Show like the negative side of it too. It's just like, once again, this is like the rug I pulled out from under them when we know that's not what happened. But anyway, yes. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Uh, for those just tuning in, I'm here with Marsha Joseph and Chris Watkins. We're going to talk about the Canadians game a little bit more and uh, I guess the Canadians in general and what's in store for them. There's not a, too much more to talk about in this game. The only thing that I had written down as a note other than what we've already talked about is uh, Alexander Romanov and... Man, oh man. I know that the Canadians hyped the heck out of this kid coming into last year. I don't know what they thought was going to happen. I thought he had a good first few games of his career, uh, especially in terms of like handling forechecks. He was good at shaking him off. Uh, that seems to have disappeared. <laughs> but uh, he, I don't know if he's just not confident right now, but I think my biggest issue is the mistakes that he's making and like the turnovers that he made in this one. I think you can understand that for a young kid who's like got a lot of offensive potential like if he's putting if he's half of adam fox right offensively or a dougie hamblin somebody of that caliber a kale mccarr a quinn hughes and he's making those turnovers while he's trying to accomplish something great i feel like you take that as a coach and you're like this is a learning experience they're going to get better but romanov just brings so little that when he makes those mistakes i'm like where is the end game here like, it just seems like, and I, I I feel like I picked on him every game this season, so I feel bad. It's kind of punching down on a 20-year-old kid or 21-year-old kid, but I just don't know why they love this kid so much organizationally and what the future is for him because I just don't see the upside. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to look up my tweet about Roman off last year. Uh, I think, oh, yeah, because he was, this was when they were... Considers to be in the running for uh, uh, Pierre Luc Dubois and uh, Alexei Romanov was uh, 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 untouchable and <laughs> it could not be included in the trade whatsoever. That's right. Uh, uh, and I was like, okay. <laughs> I uh, didn't necessarily agree with that. Uh, now, granted, I had a much higher uh, opinion of uh, Dubois at that point in time than I, than I do right now, although I think he's due for a bounce back. But I was like, uh, I would consider that. Um, and I think it's all, I, I think one is the, you know, the endowment effect of like falling in love with your own players and, and the players that you identified and drafted and developed. And obviously like, you know, Romanoff being a second round pick and, you know, him showing more than maybe what he did at that point in time, sort of, you know, push the hype machine even further where it's like, oh yeah, well, you know, because he's better than a second round pick, that means he's like an amazing, amazing player. Um, uh, I said the same thing about actually a lot of players on the other team uh, for the Rangers was like Philip Cheadle. Oh man, he's much more polished as a, a number 20 pick than we expected. So therefore he's going to be like a future number one center, like uh, our future number two. I'm like, uh, I don't really know where you're getting that from. Um, and so the funny part about Romanoff, at least about like my numbers and my stats is like, he had a really, he's had, he had one of the strangest seasons like I've ever seen in my data last year, where it's like, he's great in his zone and then great like generating offense or whatever and nothing else like like he's in like the 90th percentile and like shot suppression and like 84th percentile and uh shot creation for himself and then like in the bottom like fifth percentile and everything else like i've never seen anything like that and it's super weird obviously like as a rookie like some of it's based off of like sample size and playing time but i've never seen 
a profile like that of like someone who's only dominating like the non-neutral zone portion of the ice and then not scoring either or creating passes. So yeah, it, it, it's a really real pro profile and I don't know what that means for his future potential really. Yeah, I don't know. When when we talk about Rona, I think of like Ben Sherratt. I feel mm. like they're like similar in that we as spectators don't see what the Canadians see in them, but there's enough there that they are their pride and joy. <laughs> and I, I'm interested to see where it takes them because do you say like hanker down and you're like, we love them so much that we're really going to try to work this team around them? Or are you eventually going to open your eyes and say, hm, maybe we should move on? Yeah, and I feel like that was kind of the question that they should have asked themselves about Sherratt more in the offseason, right? When there was that big run on big offensive or big defensive D in the, in the offseason where they were all getting like massively overpaid, what could they have got on the trade market at that point? And I think right now they're in a situation where like, how many more games before people realize Weber was carrying the bag really bad on that pairing and yeah. Ben Sherratt's value plummets. But, uh, oh, here's a good one. I have a, a question, especially for you, Chris, because I know you've got uh, your your model that can kind of separate uh, individuals, um, like ways that players contribute, essentially, yeah. right? Yep. I watch Jake Evans. Yep. And I like what he does on the ice. Yep. And then I look at his analytics, and they are always terrible. Yes, correct. And usually I can tell what's wrong, right? Like, what a player is doing, what's driving their bad numbers. And for some reason with Jake Evans, maybe I'm not watching close enough. Maybe I haven't seen him enough. But I don't know what's... Other than the fact that he has no scoring punch whatsoever, right? Like, he gets great opportunities and can't score. But, like, defensively, he looks good. Like... Yes. But the numbers aren't good. <laughs> like, what's wrong with Jake Evans? Because I know the Canadians obviously love this kid. He's a great story, the yeah, path yeah, he yeah. took to get into the NHL. But I don't think that this team, without any superstar offensive players, can afford to have Jake Evans as a 3C. He's got to be a 4C, and you've got to have a, another guy who's probably better than Christian Dvorak as your 1C or 2C. Yes to all of those things. And to be fair, like uh, Dvorak, did uh the the pass he made uh for Jerome's goal was amazing yeah it was great uh, and uh and actually what i would like to see more out of jonathan Jerome to be perfectly honest but uh neither here nor there but yeah so jake evans perfect example yeah like i feel oftentimes i don't know if this is nhl specific but i'm pretty sure it's nhl specific you see a little bit in the nfl um where where people fall in love with the story or whatever. It's like, you know, hey, I found, you know, I, I drafted this guy out of obscurity and Latvia and brought them over and stuff. And, uh, or, you know, this guy came up from the ECHL and, you know, was basically on his last legs in his hockey career and made it out of himself. And my speculation for that has always been because most of the hockey GMs followed a similar path where they're not the Wayne Gretzky's of the world or the Mark Messier's. They were the sort of, you know, the Kevin Lowe's of the world or whatever. They sort of third or fourth line guys who sort of, you know, got by on grit and, and working super hard and not necessarily on talent. And so they sort of uh, uh, sort of gravitate towards those players. So like Jake Evans being a perfect example. Like, so exactly to your point, great in his own zone, great four checker, you know, has some speed, but like without the puck. And I think that's one of the issues is that when he has a puck, he just doesn't have the natural puck skills to a make plays for others and then also like to make plays for himself and so you know even though he's doing a lot and there's a lot of energy being expended in what he's doing it unfortunately does not necessarily lead to like getting because i always say like defense in hockey is just uh possession like either you have the puck or you're trying to get the puck back to have the puck again and like i feel like evans doesn't really do that portion of defense where it's like i'm getting the puck back and now i can do something with it like I'm going to make you having the puck a little bit harder, but once he has the puck himself, like there's not much that he can do with it and him being a three C, which is like sort of forcing him to create offense for others or at least drive like, you know, 50, 50 split when he's out there, like that's just not what he should be doing. So yeah, if he was in a fourth line, uh, fourth line role, I think that'd be a really great, you know, opportunity for him, but this is where the lack of the and the lack of uh, really hurts because 
Now he's pushed up further in the lineup than he needs to be, and you need more out of him than his skill set. There's a reason why he had such a long, arduous pass to the NHL, and you're asking more out of his skill set than what he's really capable of doing. Yeah, I'm with you 100% there. And I feel like this is one of those weird things where I understand where their roster construction for the first two lines is coming from. Like, they're uh, less for this game because they put Armia up with uh, Suzuki and Caulfield. I like Armia too. I have a lot of time for UL Armia as a fourth liner. But I think a, a lot of people watch that guy in practice, and in practice he is Mario friggin' Lemieux because yeah. he has all the space and time in the world, and his skill is unbelievable, his shot is unbelievable, and in-game he does a lot of good things. Amazing puck protector, you know, like puck recovery guy. He's a decent passer. If he can get a shot off, it's a bullet. But it's everything's a little bit slow. Right. right, he doesn't have that next gear, and it it looks lackadaisical. I know it's not that he doesn't try, because he's like a physical guy. He he works right. hard, but limit. Like I think when he's on the fourth line, he's a game changer at times. Right, but when he's on your first line, not seeing it. And it's kind of the same thing with Evans on like where they have Brendan Gallagher right now. Like if yeah. the Canadians think that Brendan Gallagher is done offensively because of those hand injuries and like he couldn't score in the playoffs, that was obvious. I think he looks all right to start this year, but if he doesn't have anyone on his line who can work with him, like for, for like a Dano where it's like all about forechecking and getting the puck back and feeding him in certain areas and uh, kind of like creating those goal mail scrambles for Tatar, who's more of a like slick playmaker, can finish as well. Like Hoffman will add a lot, I think, if they slot him in, but I don't think Evans fits there. I don't think he can keep up offensively and it just seems to me like a huge waste of a guy that you just signed a giant contract to and if you think that that's the long-term play then like you should have traded Gallagher in the offseason right like before that contract kicks in which I'm sure is a painful thing because like you said what we're talking about before you fall in love with the player right you fall in love with the story how can you have Brennan Gallagher on your team and not fall in love with him you know he's the guy who goes and gets cross-checked in the face on purpose you know, and scores 30 goals in a good year. But this is why, like, looking at this team and the Bergevin is not extended packs next year, I, I said it on the last show, I think they're going to try to trade for Eichel. They're one of the few teams that actually has, like, decent assets and futures. They can move some money around because of Weber's LTIR. It makes sense, right? Like, they have a desperate need for a superstar. They need depth down the middle. I don't think, like, Christian Dvorak maybe replaces Deneau. I don't think he brings as much, though. And I like that play today to set up Druin, but, like, until that point, through the first three games, like, what I what I tweeted was uh, he'd been, he's been like a boiled potato with no seasoning. Like, <laughs> I, he's he's a decent player. I can see that every night. He does good things. He wins face-offs, and I know coaches love that. He's the only guy on the team that can win a face-off right now. Yeah. But offensively... Uh, there was a point in the second period where it was like two shifts in a row almost where Dvorak got the puck in uh, around the, the top of the offensive zone and he had one Ranger defending him and he kind of beat him and then he decided to go wide. And then the next shift, David Savard of all people did almost the exact same thing, yeah. beat the beat the Ranger and then cut to the inside and created yeah. a crazy scoring chance. And I'm like, if I'm noticing David Savard more offensively than a top two center, that's an issue. Yeah, and I guess it kind of comes down to what is Bergevin willing to do to make sure that guys like this don't become dead weight on the team, right? Yeah. How far are you willing to go? And I would assume that, like, with his contract expiring, right, and he got a taste of what his legacy could be last year, to me, that would say, I'm willing to do anything, right? Like, you've got some guys that you've signed for too much term and maybe too much money, and, like, a lot of the roster is set going forward, but like give them a chance to compete. You've got all these futures that are supposedly coming in that uh, I'll believe it when I see it because the Canadians under Bergevin have developed like shockingly few legit NHLers. Yes. But uh, uh, if, if it were me, where you're looking at Carey Price and you look at what he did last year, and if he's, if he's able to come back this year, sure. you got to do something. And like Suzuki has not been great. To start the year, he looks like he's got that like new contract uh, worry in the oh. tummy, like the butterflies, right? Like he's trying to live up to it, and he's doing some stuff and not really working out. 
but uh, I like I believe Suzuki's going to be fine. But I mean, is he I'm better suited at the two seed? I'm not. Yeah, I'm not looking at the chat. So uh, you know, we we can we can we can hold this conversation on Nick Suzuki's upside <laughs> for a later point in time. But I mean, and let me be very very perfect, perfectly clear. Like I I really like Nick Suzuki. I'm all the time in the world for him as a player. Um, uh, you know, one because I think he actually is. You know, for for how young he is, for him to be able to step into the roles that he's been asked to do and not fall flat on his face to do it, it actually succeeded oftentimes uh, it, it has been great, you know, thinking also from the perspective of having a young player of color uh, in a market like Montreal and, and potentially being the star player there was obviously, you know, something I'm very interested in personally. Um, so with that being said, uh, and also the other good point is like, yes, like, do I believe he's the next Patrice Bergeron? No, but when I look at my model, uh, one of the, one of his comparables is Patrice Bergeron. Uh, there are other ones that are not quite as good. And, and what we're only talking about the sunny side of it, it, it is that. But I think looking at today's game being a perfect example, it, it's two things. You know, to me, to use a basketball reference, like it's a team without like that point. If anybody watched like the Philadelphia 76ers last year and Ben Simmons, where it's like a team without an actual point guard that can like break people down off the dribble and make other people better, make other plays for other people. I think Nick Suzuki has a capability of doing that. I think he's actually a wonderful passer, but you know, from the data, from my models, all that stuff like that, it's like, he is not that guy that's like a shoot pass threat. Whereas like he can, his shot is pretty good, but he doesn't shoot nearly enough. And so, right. you know, he does a really good job. And I think a perfect, the perfect line mate for him is Brendan Gallagher because mm-hmm. Gallagher is just going to shoot everywhere, you know, get in front of the net and take all the shots to so not always going to be the most efficient shots. They're not going to go in, but he can drive a line by himself just by getting the puck on the net. Suzuki can sort of benefit from that, but for him to take the next step, that is, you know, I made the comparison between him and Philip Hedo uh, and said, like, you know, people are in New York really high on Philip Hedo, and I'm like, the things that he's great at, he's amazing at, and the same thing with Suzuki, you know, the defense, the skating, uh, the sort of, you know, playmaking ability and all of that stuff like that. But the things he's not great at are the hardest things to get better at. And that's right. my biggest concern about Nick Suzuki is like the difference between him being a 2C, which I think is fair for him. And I thought the contract made a lot of sense for where both, you know, the Canadians and Suzuki assess his value. But for him to make that difference and leap into the elite um, is going to be very difficult because those are things that it's like Ben Simmons learning how to shoot. It's like, <laughs> you're like you have to have a baseline start point. It was like, okay, you got to at least take, take some of the shots and then hopefully they'll go in, but you got to take the shots first. And that's, the biggest concern I have for Suzuki. And when I look at the rest of the Canadians roster, I have a similar level of concern where it's like, they have a lot of finishers, you know, they have uh, Josh Anderson, they have Brendan Gallagher, they have that when Mike Hoffman gets back in, but they don't have a lot of play drivers or playmakers. And so when you looked at the power play of the Rangers and just Zibanejad and Panarin just slinging it across the ice left and right. And you looked at the power play of the, uh, of the Canadians and it's like, who is taking that role on the team? There's nobody there. I look to say like this is an above average passer for their position where they're expected to be and going to make someone score 10 more goals than they normally would in a given year. I don't see that on, on the roster. And I don't think, unfortunately, Nick Suzuki is going to be that player either. So the ICO, the ICO trade makes sense to me because that would solve a lot of those problems. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people might say, you know, for that playmaker, it might be Jonathan Drum, but what you hinted at earlier about what Dvorak did to take the puck behind the net and essentially like drive into the zone is kind of a weakness of Jonathan Druin, right? Like I do like you look at his passing skill and he's another guy you watch practice most skilled guy on the ice, right? But Druin has a bad habit and I don't want to knock him too much because I think he's been really good to start the year and he scored that beautiful goal and he's such a great story coming back from the, the anxiety and insomnia, but just talking about his play style in particular, he likes to enter the zone and then stop. Yeah. Right, he doesn't take yes. the puck deep, yeah, and that's a continual limitation on what kind of passes he's able to complete. Right, like that's why early in his career he was such a power play threat because, like, on the power play you have more room to kind of circle the zone on the on the cycle. You have more freedom to create. On the Canadians' power play, you don't have freedom to create because they just pass it around the perimeter, which is you know killed his power play numbers. But uh, at even strength he's never really had great offensive numbers because he's not able to do what you're talking about, which is create those high leverage passes that create better goal scorers or like push a 20 goal scorer into a 30 goal scorer range. 
make your teammates better. And I have I have a lot of time for Jonathan Drew, and I think he gets a lot of unfair criticism in this market in particular because for whatever reason people don't think like a fifty point player is worth around five million dollars a year, which that's just it's standard. That's what they get paid. He's not on a deal. Right, like he's not on a hometown discount, but he's fair value. I think he's like a really decent offensive middle six winger, right? Right, and he was just he was sold as the next superstar, and that was never going to be the case. So people's expectations got dashed. He's but, the uh, poor man's William Nylander. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, Nylander's way better. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> somebody asked on the Discord earlier. Uh, I guess middle middle of the game. There, were, I think it was probably for you, Chris. They might have been watching your Twitter on Left Run Year, but they were saying. Lafreniere or Jonathan Drew? <laughs> um, geez, I mean, I think coming in, I probably as a, as a as a junior prospect, I probably would have taken Lafreniere. Uh, not Lafreniere. I would have taken Drew in because I thought he had. I, I thought his like sort of median outcome would be Matt Barzal. Like I right. thought he would just, like Barzal, and he's probably the player I've watched the most, especially when I was living in New York. He's probably the player I watched the most in person. And I just remember seeing him in his like rookie year, and it's like he was just like bringing the puck in and then skating around everybody like forty five times, and then and then like making a play with it. And it's like one, I'm sure there are like forty five guys in the league that wish they had that sort of freedom and like green light to just sort of keep the puck in and play. You know, Josh was saying was like another guy within the Islander system was like that's how he played in junior, and then like he got to the pros and like no, that's not who you're supposed to be. But like just a very fat, you know, I said that difference between to me uh the example i use is always is conor mcdavid where like people are like conor mcdavid is the fastest skater in the world I'm like he's not at least by my, like my data and by like fastest skater competition all that stuff like that but it's not just the speed itself it's the confidence to use the speed at every single opportunity it's like steph curry in the nba where like steph curry is just like i'm going to shoot every single time i get the ball from like 45 feet out because i am the best shooter in the world and everybody knows it and like other players started to follow in that track. And so, you know, I have Damian Lillard shooting from 40 feet and James Harden shooting like 23s a game. All these players were capable of doing that, but it took someone like Steph Curry to unlock that for them. And so Conor David, Mark ba- and Matt Barzal, just bringing the puck into the net and making plays and not trusting like their other less talented teammates to make the plays for them. But like say, I'm going to do it myself. Like Jonathan Drun should have been that type of player. And so that's the difference I see. And, and same thing with Lafreniere and Kako where I said, like, I need Lafreniere to pretend like he's the best player in the world and was the best prospect in the world last year. Like, I feel like he does not play like that. And that's that's why I've been so hard on him, because, like, I saw him make plays where he, like, got around, uh, I think, Savard, and then just immediately gave the puck up. And I was, like, yeah. four or five plays like that. We had open ice in front of him. I'm, like, take it in. Take a bad shot. I don't care, but just take the shot. Like, you deserve to take it. And he just kept giving it up. I was, like, I'm, not, I'm out on that. So, I think Jeruan had that at some point in time. This while there was the whole blow up with Tampa Bay in the first place. Uh, I feel like Lafreniere is going to fall back into that, and like that's why I'm a little bit concerned about his trajectory. Do you think that's that's like a confidence thing, or just like a I don't like a skill, a kind of skill set thing? I think it can be both, right? Like there's some players that you can't crack their confidence, right? Like they're going to do it no matter what, and like some of them are superstars, and some of them you know they become giant liabilities because they shouldn't have that level of confidence and coaches hate them but i I think that the conservative nature of the game hurts a lot of players in that because you start second guessing and with like lafreniere i wonder how much of that is like bad coaching right or like bad development it's it's the same with like the montreal canadians i read like an article i think i showed it out last podcast as well and this will we'll end soon here because we're we're going super long because i'm just having so much fun chatting with you guys but uh, it was by Ellen Etchingham, who's a fantastic writer and Canadians fan who just recently got back into writing after taking some time off. And she broke down the Canadians drafting and development record under the like Ganey Gauthier regime, regime and under Bergevin. It's the same head scout. It's the same team scouts. And the difference is like shocking. So it's like at, at a certain point, you got to look at development too. And like maybe those guys who were ahead of the curve in scouting also 10 years ago are no longer ahead of the curve so like that could be true but when it's the same guys they're still working same team like to me that's reeks of bad development and i think a lot of players like we you hear people talk all the time about uh players never hurt by st- spending more time in the american hockey league or the 
or in the junior leagues. We don't know that. It's confirmation bias, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know how many guys never make it because they spent too long in the minors and had like a bad coach who was trying to get them to bunk, dump the puck out all the time. Right. Yeah, actually, I was talking about that earlier today uh, with uh, the Rangers and, and Krastoff, and Krastoff, uh, and the sort of back and forth with them. It's like, you know, they send them over to the KHL or you let them go over to the KHL. It's like, yeah, hopefully you're working on those things that we said you sucked at or whatever. And I was like, why are you? I mean, I just think, it, you know, I've managed people, you know, I do learning and development at work or I used to do it in the past. And it's like, I, I wouldn't go like, yeah, okay. Here, you know, if I'm working at Wendy's, I'm like, yeah, go over to McDonald's or something like that. And then come back and then hopefully you're better at flipping the, the burgers or whatever. Like, no, like we would have a process. We sit you down, they'd be training, all of that stuff. Like we would devote the time and resources to that. So like, to me, one of the key inflection points for the Canadians going forward is Cole Caulfield. Like he should be the next Alex Zabrinkit. But like people only see Alex Zabrinkit scoring goals and think like that's the only part of his game. But like he's a play driver. He is actually relatively decent on defense and all of that. But he wasn't so at the beginning of his career. And if a coach only focused on the fact that he was giving up chances on the other end, as all the Blackhawks were doing at that point in time, he would have never developed into the player that he is. And so for Caulfield, it was the same thing. I think he has that confidence. I love like just the, you know, he's able to come in and play off and contribute immediately and shoot as much as he, as he did, but that should never go away. Even if the puck's not going to the net, he, should, he, for him to be the best player that he needs to be, he has to always have that confidence that they, I missed the last 10 shots, but the next one's going in no matter what, because if he doesn't have that, then you don't have the same player that you expected. Yeah. You kind of saw that in the playoffs when Robin Leonard talked about uh, scouting him. Right. And it was like immediate, the the confidence came out and he's like, okay, the next one's going in. He beat him twice in the following couple of games. It, it's such a fragile thing, that confidence, but uh, yeah. Okay. So we should probably wrap it up because it's almost 11 o'clock and I don't want to take all your guys whole night. And I really appreciate you coming on here. I had a great time chatting with you guys. I hope everybody watching is going to have a great time watching and everybody listening as well. Uh, please go follow Chris his, and Marsha. Their uh, ats are in the YouTube description. They'll be in the podcast description as well, so you can get that. But uh, at underscore or at underscore Mo Joseph, right? That's, yeah. I just want to make sure that's Marsha. And YOLO underscore Pinado, which is... Can you explain that for us, Chris? The, the YOLO yeah, Pinado? Yeah. Very quickly, uh, back when YOLO was like actually still a cool term to use, there's uh, uh, another rapper at the time started creating this character called YOLO Pinata. <laughs> it was just like this Pinata that would get in all types of trouble. And so I made that my DJ name at the time when I was in grad school. Uh, it, it was previously Sirac Obama, and I switched that to YOLO Pinata um, and just have had it since. So Awesome. All right. Thanks so much to both of you for coming on. I really enjoyed it. And hopefully... The Canadians aren't going to keep on pace for 82 goals in an 82-game season because that's going to be super boring. And I feel like it might have been a really big mistake to start the show. (laughs) Talk to you guys soon.